awesome. First Samuel 17, if you're there, say amen. I, I want to tell you a story uh, about a man by the name of Antoine Yates. He's a resident of Harlem, New York. Antoine owned a pet tiger that he named Ming, and I'm not talking about the stuffed tiger he has. I'm talking about a real tiger. And he said, in fact, he owned several exotic animals. He owned a tiger, and then he also owned an alligator. Um, but he said his, his ownership of exotic pets was his way to escape this hell-on-earth environment of living in Harlem. And, and that was all good until one day he was attacked by his pet tiger. He went to the hospital, and they checked him in for dog bites. It's the only category they had. And amazingly, he survived. As I read that story for a split second, I kind of wanted to feel bad for the guy. But I also thought what probably most sane people in here tonight are, are thinking, and it's this, why would anyone have a pet tiger? I, I, I mean, a 500-pound bingle tiger in a high-rise apartment. Why? I mean, tigers are meat eaters. They literally survive by hunting and killing their prey. And by the way, a tiger will always be a tiger. So why would anyone try to attempt, like, tempt nature by making a pet out of a natural-born killer? Here's what happened. Antoine, Antoine bought his pet tiger, Ming, when it was real small. Just a small, cute little cub. It was playful. It was entertaining. It was endearing. It's like a much cooler version of a house cat. They even had a bond between them. But you know what happened? Mean grew up. And the cute and cuddly tiger cub became a 500-pound predator. And the predator eventually did what it was created to do. It attacked. And that guy was lucky to survive. Did you know it's not much different with the sin in our lives? The habits... The behaviors, um, the attitudes, the same old broken ways that we're accommodating in our lives even tonight. Our pet sins, they start out as cute, cuddly babies, don't they? They're harmless, they're small, they're seemingly uh, easy to manage. We even form a bond with them, a bond that deceives us as to how much danger they actually pose in our lives. But these same set pet, uh, pet sins like, like me have a tendency to grow, don't they? And the day will come when they show their true colors and they will no longer be cute. They will no longer be cuddly. They become giants in our lives. Savage killers that threaten our walk with God, that threaten our testimony for Christ, and that have potential to totally damage our closest relationships. Such was the case with the nation of Israel. When Israel first moved into the promised land, God gave them a clear command that they were to rid the promised land of all its former inhabitants. That was God's land. That was God's territory. And for a variety of reasons, Israel didn't do that. One of the reasons is probably because they, they saw the surrounding nations as, well, not that big of a threat. So long as they stayed where they were, they would be okay. They, they thought they had everything under control until the Philistines began to threaten. And among these Philistines emerged a giant by the name of who? Goliath. And as we study our text, you're going to find that the Holy Spirit led the narrator to give a lot of detail about the giant. 
And it's actually through some of this detail that we're able to better identify the giants in our life that we may be tolerating even tonight. Let me be very clear tonight, right at the beginning, your giant is not a circumstance that happens to you. Are you hearing me? There's a lot of songs written about giants and poems written about giants and preaching about giants, but it's not a circumstance. It's not a sickness. It's not a poor financial fortune. It's not the fact that you lost your job. Okay, your giant is not the team that you play against on Friday nights. Your giant has nothing to do with the sport. Your giant has nothing to do with overcoming the odds in your life. That's not what Goliath represents for the New Testament believer today. I'm gonna teach you how you can kill your giants, what you should do in the face of your giant, but before I can teach you that, you gotta understand what your giant is. And so I want you to look at verse one because it helps us to understand what our giant really is. First one of chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. We're gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to, what's that next word? Two ways you can identify your giant. Here's the first. Your giant is the sin that is after God's territory in your life. You can't pass over the detail in verse one that told us that the Philistines were occupying territory that belonged to Judah. Here's the problem with this picture. The Philistines already controlled parts of Judah and they were wanting more. What's the problem with that? Judah is God's territory. That's God's land. We want to skip verse one and get to where David, you know, slung the rock and hit the giant and then cut his head off. But this gives us all the context in the world. They were tolerating their enemy taking over more and more and more of the territory that belonged to God and belonged to them. And that's the first way you can identify what your giant is tonight. It's whatever is after God's territory in your life. That could be a number of things. Discontentment, anger, jealousy, bitterness, lying, lust, materialism, worry, self-pity, an unbridled tongue, an untempered passion, laziness, impulsiveness, and addiction. Listen, I don't have time to name every possible sin, and I don't have to. If you're honest with you and God and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now, you know the sins that you tend to struggle with on a daily basis. You know the things in your life that keep plaguing you. And if you're anything like me, when you read a list of sins in the Bible or you hear a preacher preaching on sin, you're tempted to be kind of overwhelmed. Like, wow, I must have a lot of giants, like six or seven, and they rotate. Well, it's interesting in 1 Samuel 17 that there was just one Philistine that seemed to threaten Israel more than the others. And that's the second way to identify your giant. Your giant is not just after God's territory. Your giant is the one sin that threatens you above the rest. Are you listening? Even though there was an entire Philistine army, the narrator only describes one giant among the entire army, and he's huge. I didn't put this on the screen, but I'm gonna read these verses in verses four through seven. Follow along in your copy of God's word. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. And he begins to describe him. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. That means Goliath would have been about nine feet tall, maybe a little taller, enormously muscular. 
protected by a coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. He had leg protection. He had a massive javelin that had a brass head that was 19 pounds. It was like a weaver's beam, probably at least 10 feet long. He was accompanied by, by his own shield bearer for protection. It's no wonder everyone's attention was fastened on this one guy. And that's a good way to identify the giant in your life. Ask yourself, what is the one sin that seems to stand out among the rest? What is the one sin that plagues you the most tonight? What is the one sin that stands head and shoulders above any other sinful threat in your life? The author of Hebrews calls it a besetting sin. It's the, it's the sin you confess the most. It's the sin you fall to the most. It's the sin you tell God I'm sorry for the most. It's the sin that you keep going back to in spite of honor, honest efforts to get rid of it before. That's your giant right now. And here's what you have to understand about your giant. Don't miss this. Your giant's not backing down. No, no, the enticement, the temptation, and the devil who stands behind both of those things isn't going away. The story tells us that Goliath stood up to the Israelites every day and came on his side of the valley and screamed threats to them, accusations to them, and intimidating things to them, saying, you pick your best guy and I'll go against him. And the narrator tells us he did this for 40 days. Hear me, church, the devil's mission is to kill and to steal and destroy. And he will do that through temptation. He will do that through enticement. He will do that through accusation. He will do that through deceit. And he will not stop. Which begs the question, if you're giant, your sin that is after God's territory and is the one, the sin that kind of rises to the top, if that is never going away, how do you respond? What do you do? Well, very simply, here's what you do. You stand and you fight. You, you don't run in fear, you stand in courage and you fight. You remember when the Apostle Paul wrote about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter sin, uh, sin 6. What was his main admonition to the believers at Ephesus? He said, stand fast. Stand strong. Three different times before he ever told them to put on the armor of God, he said, here's what you got to understand. You have to fight. You can't run from the fight. You can't run from the battle. Hear me, believers, you have been equipped to resist the devil. You have been equipped to fight the good fight of faith. God has given you everything in Christ to defeat the sin in your life, to slay the giant in your life, and live in victory over the flesh and the world and the devil. But that wasn't the posture of King Saul. It wasn't the posture of the Israelite army. Look at verse 10 and 11. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Drop down to verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. The armies of Israel were filled with with fear, and that surprises me when you consider who they chose to be their leader. King Saul, the people's choice, head and shoulders, the Bible says, above everybody else. He had won battles before, but on this day, he was scared to fight. They had Eliab, David's oldest brother, Jesse's oldest son, 
When the man of God came to find the next king of Israel, who was his very first pick? Eliab. He was experienced. He was the oldest one. He knew how to bear responsibility. He knew how to fight. He was strong. He was a warrior. But Eliab was too scared to fight. My question is why? Why did these men lack the courage to stand up to their giant? I'll tell you in a phrase and then we'll go to work on it. They lack courage to fight because their motivation wasn't right. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. The armies of Israel, watch here, they were motivated by their own glory. Their national glory. Notice how they describe Goliath in the first part of the verse. Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. It was all about Israel. It was all about their nation's glory and their army's glory. Further, they were motivated by the earthly pursuits that would bring themselves glory. Did you see that? Whoever killed the king would be rich. Would get to marry the king's daughter. His family would enjoy a tax-free life forever. All those things are good, but they're selfish. They're earthly. And they weren't enough to infuse the courage necessary to stand against their giant. Their focus was on themselves and their shallow motivations for fighting left them afraid and running from their giant for 40 days. Now when I think about this, I ask myself, is there not one guy in this army that would risk his life so that he might be part of the royal court? Not one is there not one young man in the army that doesn't care enough about his family to fight Goliath and just maybe earn them a tax-free life? Come on, there's hundreds of them and not one? I was pretty hard in the army until I thought about the things in my life I won't do no matter how much money you pay me. I don't care what you motivate me with, I probably wouldn't do them as far as just earthly things. Like skydiving. I would never skydive. Now if you told me like, my wife and my son are going to be put in danger unless you skydive. I would skydive. Maybe. <laughs> but if it was like a million dollars, I'm telling you right now, if it's a million dollars, I wouldn't skydive. There, it, it makes no sense to me whatsoever to jump out of a perfectly good aircraft. Just doesn't make any sense. It's like a phobia of mine. Roller coasters about all I can handle. I can't even handle those. And you know what else I wouldn't do? I wouldn't bungee jump. Would somebody bungee jump in here? Yeah. You just admitted you're not right up here. <laughs> to jump off a perfectly good bridge with basically relying on a rubber band on steroids to hold you up, save your life, right? You know what else I wouldn't do no matter how much you paid me? I would never own a cat. <laughs> never own a cat. And neither should you. No. The devil is likened to a cat. A roaring lion. Listen now. I got some husbands saying, are you listening to this message? <laughs> yeah. What skydiving is to me, Goliath was to them. Are you hearing me? Money wasn't enough of motivation. Royalty wasn't enough of a motivation. A tax-free life wasn't enough of, mo of a motivation. And for some in here, even tonight, this is the exact reason why you keep running back to the giant in your life. 
It's the same reason why you keep tolerating the sin that's taking God's territory in your life. It's the same reason why you've only wounded your giant but never killed your giant. It's because you lack the courage necessary to stand and fight because you are motivated by the wrong things. We think to ourselves, how can I stop doing this so I can stop feeling so guilty? How can I overcome this giant so my life gets better for me? That works now. Praise the Lord. They just flashed a message up there. That's impressive. I need to overcome this anger because I'm sick of embarrassing myself when I say and do stupid things. I need to defeat this giant of lust or else I'm going to get caught and lose my marriage. I have to overcome my bad attitude at work or else I won't get promoted or I'll lose my job altogether. I have to slay this giant of discontentment or I'm going to be living in financial debt the rest of my life. I have to overcome this addiction or else it's going to affect my relationship at work and at church. I have to get my speech under control, my lies, my gossip, my complaining, because if I don't, I'm not going to have any close friends. I'm not saying these are bad reasons to overcome your sin, but they can't be the foundational motivations for fighting the giants in your life. Listen, you make a terrible mistake when your battle for righteousness becomes centered around you. Think about it. If sin is the expression of selfishness, how then can you defeat sin by doing it for selfish motivations? This is why many believers wound their giant, but they never kill their giant and eventually lose courage to fight their giant altogether because their motivation for fighting the sin in their life is not right. So then what's the right motivation? Well, David's going to show us. It's very interesting what the Holy Spirit led the narrator to do. He sandwiches, follow here, he sandwiches the introduction of David in this text between verse 11, where Saul is too afraid to fight, and verse 24, where Saul is too afraid to fight. So watch this. There's the fear of Saul on this side, one bracket. There's the fear of, this, of Saul on this side, verse 24, another bracket. And centered in between is the introduction of David, and it portrays him as courageous. Meaning we're supposed to learn from David how to have the courage necessary to stand strong and fight against the giants in our life. We won't read it, but verses 12 through 19 give David a, an introduction. He's the son of, Jeth, of Jesse. And, and, and Jesse um, has entrusted him with kind of the menial task of a shepherd. But he goes to David and he says, I want you to go check in on your brothers. It's been over a month since I heard from them. So I want you to take them some provision and bring back a report of how they're doing. And we'll pick it up in verse 26. I'm sorry, verse uh, 20. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And watch this, David heard them. The threat, listen, that became commonplace to the army of Israel was fresh to David. 
He heard the words of the giant for the first time and he heard them differently than Saul. He heard them differently than Eliab and he heard them differently than the, uh, than the, the others of the Israelite army that had heard them for 40 days prior. And that is shown in how David responded to what he heard. And verse 26 of our text is the very first time in all the Bible that David speaks. The very first time his words out loud are recorded in Scripture, verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killed this Philistine, taketh away reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, watch here, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Study with me. There's a subtle difference, but profound in how David described Goliath as compared to how the armies of Israel described Goliath. In verse 25, watch this, the men of Israel said, surely to defy Israel as he's coming up. Verse 26, that he should defy the armies of the living God. What's the difference? God is mentioned for the first time in this entire story. Are you thinking with me? Up to this point, it's all about the giant. It's all about the nation of Israel. But David finally speaks for the first time. And when he does, he interjects God into the story. Meaning David isn't caught up with his own glory. David isn't caught up simply be, be, because he, he, what he can gain from fighting Goliath. David isn't fired up simply because of patriotic pride. David is stirred in his spirit because he heard this giant defying the glory of his God. To David, it isn't about military honor. To David, it's not about national honor. To David, it's about God's armor, honor. Everyone else is thinking in these two dimensions, giants and armies. David is thinking in these two dimensions, giants and God. And the contrast is striking. Saul's men are motivated by selfish glory and they're afraid of the giant. David is motivated by God's glory and he's ready to stand up to the giant. Saul's motivation led to shameful resignation. David's motivation led to righteous indignation. Saul's motivation led to fear. David's motivation led to courage. And that gives us the key to finding the courage to fight our giants. The courage to stand up to the sin that defies the glory of God in our life. And don't miss it in a statement. You'll have courage to fight when your motivation is right. When you're motivated by God's glory more than anything else, you will not tolerate anything that attempts to defame or attempts to defy or attempts to dethrone God's glory in your life. Growing up, I was never a fighter with my fist. I was always a fighter with my mouth. My brother was a fighter with his mouth and his fist. I was just a fighter with my mouth and then I let my brother fight with his fist on my behalf. And so up to this point, I think I was about 12 years old, I had never been in a real fist fight. Me and my brother squabbled every once in a while, but, but never like, I'd never been hit in the face. Uh, I don't plan on getting hit in the face. Um, I'd never truly hit someone in the face up until I was 12 years old and we were playing a good old fashioned game of tackle football with the neighborhood kids on South Grant. In fact, 
um, it was in the front yard of one of our deacons' houses now, whose name is Mike Dominguez. And um, it, the, the last name of the people that lived there, I think it was Bach. I think it's the last name. He was a wrestler. Uh, I, think, I think it was Bach. Yeah. Uh, I just know his first name was Ben. He's the first guy I ever punched in the face. Um, but we were, we were playing tackle football. And it was me and my brother. First Ben and his brother. And, and so the, the Prater boys versus the Bach boys. My dad always taught me and TJ growing up, you are not allowed to hit people. It's not okay. But there are two exceptions. If somebody is literally beating you up and you have to defend yourself, you can't get out of the situation, you should probably throw, you know, a few blows. Number two, if someone talks about your mama. <laughs> I never knew if he was serious until this day. But I can remember that TJ was quarterback and I went out for a pass and I did a little juke back when I was actually quick and got to the driveway, which, which was the end zone. And it tipped off of Ben's hands and it came back and fell in my hands. And I told you, I fight my battle with my mouth. And so I slammed the ball down and I started talking trash to him or whatever. And it hurt Ben's feelings. And, and Ben said something about my mom. And for some reason, even though I was winning, it ticked me off. And for the first time and the last time in my life, I literally hit the dude in the face. I don't suggest this, but I told my dad and he said, what'd he do? He, he said something about mom. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so my dad was cool with that. Now, fathers, you can make your own decisions with your kid, but Kevin, if someone talks about mom, hit him in the face. I'm good with that. Um, on that day, 1400 block of South Grant, I had courage to fight in a way I never had before because that kid infringed upon the glory of my mama. And some, some kind of courage arose within my spirit that I did something that was totally uncharacteristic for me. And that's the idea I'm getting at. It's what happened in David's life. How did he have the courage as just a young teenage boy who watched sheep to stand up to a giant that all the other experienced warriors and even the king himself ran from. It doesn't make sense, but here's why. Because David was convicted about God's glory and Goliath was infringing upon it. You might have hoped that tonight's message would have included maybe four practical steps on how you can defeat your giant. But I think that's, that's our problem when we deal with our sin. We like to start there. We want to make it all about us. How can I stop doing this so I? And it sounds really spiritual and we will get practical. But let's be honest. God's glory can be embarrassingly far from our minds when we're dealing with our sin. Here's the truth. You'll have courage to fight your giant of anger when you're motivated, not because of the embarrassment it brings upon you after you do something stupid in your anger, but because of the embarrassment it brings to the name of God and the glory of God in your life. 
You'll have the courage to fight the giant of lust, not because of fear of getting caught, but because you know your secret sin is stealing the territory in your mind and in your heart that belongs to God. And the brightness of his glory through a pure heart and a clean mind is being dimmed more and more by the darkness of your hidden sin. You'll have the courage to fight your giant of an unbridled tongue, or in 2021, unbridled thumbs. Not just because you want to get away from the drama it's bringing into your life, but because through your words, or through your text, or through your social media posts, you're bringing more attention to yourself and the issues you're passionate about, more than you're bringing attention upon the grace and the goodness and the glory of your God. You'll have the courage to fight your addiction, the one you've given up to time and time again, not because you've been given an ultimatum, but because you're convicted about a substance having more rule in your life than the Spirit of God does. And you understand that God isn't getting the glory from your life that He should be getting because of it. Do you see the connection between your courage to fight and your motivation for fighting? You'll have courage to fight when your motivation is right. Some of you are standing in your own valley of Elah tonight. And you've been there for quite some time now. The giant has been wreaking havoc in your life for far more than 40 days. And you've been tolerating that sin for too long as it's been infringing on God's glory in your life. You've had spurts of spiritual momentum and have tried to fight the giant, but you've only wounded it before it came back and devastated you again. If you're honest, you sit here tonight and you have just resigned to that being part of your life. Why is that? Could it be that way in your life tonight because God's glory is not your chief motivation? Could it be that way in your life tonight because what fires you up most about your sin is how it affects you, not how it affects God. And if that's the case, please hear me, you are more like King Saul than King David. Saul, when he was confronted with his sin in 1 Samuel 15, he wasn't sorry for his sin. Not that he sinned against his king. He was sorry that he just lost his kingdom. He was sorry he got caught. And he never overcame his rebellion, his impulsiveness, his stubbornness, and his pride. You know why? Because it was all about him. All about his kingdom. And the reason why some of you will come to an altar and you will pray reason why some of you will confess and you'll do your best to forsake, but keep running back to your giant is because you have made your fight all about you. What breaks your heart is not that you're breaking God's heart. What breaks your heart is not that your broken marriage is not getting, giving glory to God. That doesn't break your heart. What breaks your heart is that you don't want to lose your marriage. What breaks your heart is that you want to get more healthy and you're not. What breaks your heart is that you keep embarrassing yourself by doing that. What breaks your heart is the consequence that keeps coming up as a result of that giant. And you have been embarrassingly distant in your thoughts from God's glory and how it's affecting him. Yet you've got Joseph 
who when Potiphar's wife came to him and said, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. He said, it was day after day after day, kind of like Goliath, 40 days. And she finally caught him in a position where he had to speak up. And instead of just saying no, he said, let me tell you why I can't sleep with you as beautiful as you are. Because it would be great wickedness against my God. He was motivated because he was convicted about God's glory. And God help our brokenness tonight over our giant to not be motivated by how it affects us, but how it affects the glory of our God. You'll have courage to fight when your motivation is right. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.